This is the Center for Strategic and International Studies Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. This is the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk here at CSIS in Washington. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Our topic today is NATO, the fallout from the July summit and the alliance's future. My guests are Kathleen Hicks, director of the International Security Program here at CSIS and head of Smart Women, Smart Power, also known as my boss, who's fabulous, and, and Heather Connolly, one of my favorite people here at CSIS. She directs the Europe program, and both these fine women are senior vice presidents here at CSIS. And thanks to you for joining me. Thanks, Beth. Okay, now that we've had some time to digest the NATO summit and the Helsinki summit that immediately followed, what's the real fallout? I mean, is it a distancing of European countries from the U.S.? Perhaps they see us as a, a less reliable partner. What say you? So I, I think we're still in the recovery phase after the president's trip. Uh, and in fact, um, and, and still feeling the, the repercussions of it here in Washington. So we just um, had uh, a bipartisan Senate bill uh, just be put forward. It's called Defending American Security from Kremlin Aggression Act of 2018. And what's important about that uh, draft legislation is that in some ways it's sort of the the cleanup uh, after the president's trip to Europe. So some of its highlights, it requires um, a requirement for two-thirds of the United States Senate to vote to leave NATO. It provides uh, excess defense articles to NATO countries to reduce their dependency on Russian military equipment. Those are uh, NATO countries uh, from the former uh, Warsaw Pact countries. And then it goes on to list a whole series of issues to help protect the United States from Russian malign interference for the midterm elections. In some ways, this is the answer to the president's trip, which, uh, let's just to, to put it very clearly, the stop in Brussels, uh, an American president openly thought about withdrawing the United States from NATO. And then uh, standing beside a Russian president suggested that he believed the Russian president's views rather than his own intelligence and national security community. Those are two extraordinary events in, in our history. Um, and as I said, I think you're seeing the ripple effects uh, and the pushback from the president's actions during his trip. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, so sometimes you have to hit bottom first um, in order to kind of claw your way back. And I do think that's I think that's essentially where we are in the transatlantic relationship. I Obviously, worse things can happen. Um, so I'm not suggesting that. But 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 tonally and the collective from the G7 summit forward and certainly even from the campaign rhetoric forward, I, I think we've, you know, the 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 die is cast in terms of the opinions about in Europe about this particular president's attitude toward the alliance and um, now it's about how are we gonna you know what's next what comes next for the alliance and I always um, 
dislike language that starts with re, like return, um, re-engage, rebuild, um, because I think inevitably things have fundamentally changed. They just have. And it's not just because of the American presence. Viewpoint, obviously, European context, there's Brexit, there's the Russian activities, including the, the annexation of Crimea and, and election interference, et cetera. This, things are changing. And so where we go in terms of the transatlantic relationship, I think, can have enduring foundations, but probably is a new we need to look ahead to kind of a new uh, framework for how we think about our relationship. And I certainly expect and hope that NATO will be the centerpiece of that for the reasons Heather said, because those people who would support those principles and foundations on both sides of the Atlantic are going to fight for it. Let me follow up on on that. Um, a new framework, things have changed. Even the Europeans, there were quotes after the summit where it was Donald Tusk who said, He talked about the increasing darkness of international politics. And then after the Helsinki summit, uh, there was a German member of the European Parliament who said that we Europeans must take our fate in our own hands. Is that what you're talking about in terms of things have changed? There's a new framework? Yeah. And I again, by new framework, I don't mean to say institute that we don't have necessarily the institutions rely on, because I think both the EU and NATO are very strong institutions to build on. It would be foolhardy to throw them over or for, for new approaches in that sense. But a new framework in terms of how we think about the global order and how we in the West, frankly, the in the in the Europe West context, um, we're going to advance the principles of, you know, democracy and free markets, um, which are at the core, right, and, and rule of law in a changing environmental context. And that there's so many aspects to that context. It's probably not worth going through all of them. You've named several that I think are very important. But I'll just say one thing. I mean, if you look even at the history of NATO, um, and, and Heather is far more an expert on this than I am, but just at the very gross level, obviously people think a lot about what was founded after World War II. And you know, those who work on NATO are well familiar with the uh, the colloquialism, the catchphrase of, you know, it was built to keep the U.S. in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. And even in 1989, when the wall came down, there was concern in Europe about Germany's role and keeping Germany down, frankly. And here we're not that far removed in time. I mean, this time certainly has passed. But that has changed fundamentally. People are now all over the Germans <laughs> about not stepping up. Um, and that's just a very different context. And, and as we look ahead to the future, that's a different way to think about how we see Europe in the future than how the United States has previously, let alone the alliance as a whole, has previously thought about European security. Yeah, I mean, it's what's so interesting. We focus on President Trump's comments because as a candidate and then as president, uh, calling NATO obsolete. And he's held these long-held views that allies, partners, friends, they are a drain on the United States. They t- that friends take advantage of the United States. That's 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 been a theme. But President Trump is just with clear tones has sort of articulated something that we've been sort of sliding into for a decade plus. Um, we have forgotten this. We don't, really don't have a strategic understanding anymore of allies. We did at the end of the Second World War. We understood, to put it very simplistically, the country with the most allies wins, and the country that is isolated will have to eventually capitulate. And so that is a theory of, of power politics, if you will. But we have a generation that doesn't understand what NATO is, the post-Berlin Wall generation in Europe or in the United 
United States. So what Kathy was talking about, this new framework, we have got to make all of the principles and the core tenets of alliances that we are a protector of liberal values, of democracy, of free markets. That's why we have protection and alliances and security. We are not protecting authoritarians and dictators. We are we are protecting uh, a way of life that we believe is, is stabilizing and important. But we have to make that relevant to an, a young generation because if we don't, then we have lost that uh, that strategic thread. The other question I get to your your point, Bev, is so you know where does Europe go if if the U.S. retrenches, if it withdraws, its neighborhood is getting more and more scary. Uh, it's certainly what uh, European Council President Donald Tusk is mentioning. Some have called it a ring of fire from Russia, uh, Eastern aggression to migration and instability coming from the South, the uncertainty coming from the Atlantic, from the U.S., uh, that they are surrounded. So what does this mean? We are on our own, is what uh, some European leaders say. So what is Europe doing today? Well, they have to strengthen themselves, and this is what they have woefully not done. Uh, and there is some, as everything, there is some truth to uh, much of what President Trump, President Obama, President Bush have said that Europe has got to do more. They cannot always rely on the U.S. to be the dominant military power. And now they really do have to do more. And uh, we will see how serious they are. You, so you're seeing certainly an increase in defense spending in the Baltic states and Poland because, again, they have a very real security threat. And the U.S. is supporting uh, what they are doing. But Germany, Italy, others uh, must do more. They have to do more together. And you're seeing that as well. U.K., France, uh, others are, are doing more on the security front. But they don't, they don't have another option. They're going to have to, to use Secretary Mattis's fame, they're going to have to hold the line until we get back up on our feet and can be able to do more with them until we relearn why allies are so important. But we just hope that we don't have a breakdown. Right now, I worry about rampant anti-Americanism right now in Europe, that we're helping, and then forces of darkness, uh, illiberalism that are also in Russia are also helping. Um, we have to make sure we have the American people back in a supportive view of what NATO and allies mean. And we've got some work on our side to do as well. So what I hear you both saying is that we're at some kind of turning point, um, at least in the U.S., Europe relationship. So, I mean, this is NATO. NATO goes through its every decade crisis, you know, the identity crisis. Oh, no. Uh, it actually was having a pretty significant identity crisis right before the Russians uh, annexed Crimea and invaded uh, the Donbass. And we sort of rejolted ourselves back into understanding what this important thing was. But it's you can't just sustain on an event. You have to return back, as Kath was saying. You have to believe in those core principles and tenets and say they are worth sacrificing uh, an American for those efforts. And what was so devastating, and then I'll stop talking, Kath, I promise. Um, when the president was having an interview with Fox News and he talked about, was it worth a U.S. soldier dying for NATO's newest member, which is Montenegro? And the president said, yeah, I've had that same question, and Montenegro is very aggressive, and maybe it's World War III. Again, this, is, this demonstrates we do not understand fundamentally. We are protecting democracy 
and market economies, and we are protecting, and what we want is stability. I guarantee you the Baltic states and uh, Northern Europe today are much more stable because NATO has expanded. Because without NATO, these countries would have taken destabilizing effects. We would have already been in a regional conflict, I believe, much worse than it is today. Alliances give countries confidence that they don't have to go to war, that we can deter aggression. So it's stabilizing, but we are fighting for something greater than ourselves. It's our values and our democracy, and it is worth the sacrifice if those countries live up to their obligations to be worthy of that sacrifice. That's what we have to tell the American people why we're doing this, and we haven't for a long time. I noticed there's a hashtag that says, we are NATO, and I don't I don't know if that's part of a campaign it to... Help people. So I want every American soldier to have. We are Army. We are NATO. Because the American people need to understand. We've always treated NATO as they. We, the U.S. They, the others. Uh Uh-uh. We're all on the same team. We are NATO. So when a U.S. soldier is based in Szczecin, Poland, to defend Poland, we are NATO. We are not just the U.S., but we know the U.S. has the very unique security guarantee that that makes us more important, which is why when we shake that pillar, we shake the whole house. And that's what the president did uh, during the Brussels summit. And you were in, Kath, you were in uh, Brussels just a few days before the summit because you and the scholars in the International Security Program and the Europe Program released a report on NATO and the 2% of GDP spending issue that was the focus of a lot of conversation uh, during the NATO summit. Um, What I'd like you to do is talk a little bit about the report and the findings and what the fixation on this issue actually means for the alliance going forward. I think bottom line, what we, once we had undertaken our study, what we really wanted to convey in Brussels before the summit and then coming out of the summit today and going forward on the future of NATO is um at the tied to this big picture issue is that the alliance is about more than numbers the that there has been as as heather just said long standing concern about the capability and, and um contributions of all the members of the alliance and that is appropriate it is real and uh we ought to focus on it but we have gotten to the point now where it is all we focus on and it is definitely losing sight of what we gain out of having um this alliance together and how much collectively we are invested because the europeans collectively are heavily invested in defense can they do better can it be you know better focused Uh, can it generate better capabilities yes same with us bigger problem for Europe because our capabilities are simply um, out ahead of those of most of the rest of Europe. Um, So that was the big picture piece, which is this is all we talk about. And because of that, as Heather is just indicating in her remarks, you get this blowback effect on this undermining of the alliance that is so self-defeating, just just strategically self-defeating. So we wanted to make that point. And then on the more technical piece, we wanted to talk about how do you measure the value that different allies can bring and that the alliance can bring collectively. And that's where we get, we do talk about the 2% and how to think about the 2%, which is 2% of GDP spent on defense, which is a target um, that NATO uh, heads of state uh, agreed to several years ago to reach, I think it's 2022. By the way, we weren't actually supposed to- 2024, sorry, 2024. 2024. Weren't even supposed to be held 
accountable to it now. Um, but it has taken over everything. And, and even if and even if we're talking about in the context of 2024, there are real limits to using percent of GDP as the way to measure value. Um, so we really argue in the paper for broadening how we think about contribution um, and really focusing on output metrics in particular, um, namely military capability and what is the actual military capability that's being generated. Is this argument being well received? Uh, the report came out in July right before the summit. So is it being well received? Very well received. The report itself is very well received, but it also lies on some fertile ground. Um, NATO had um, started internally and the U.S. portions of the U.S. government in particular, I think the Defense Department, had started already moving along these lines of thinking ahead to how should we talk about capability um, instead output, if you will, capability output as opposed to investment or dollars put in in the front end. Um, and so out of the summit um, is a uh, statement that NATO is going to be looking into, which is not, by the way, I'd love to think it was driven entirely about our report, oh, but go I ahead, think, take credit yeah, for it. <laughs> but I think we helped along where it was going. But I, you know, there were many other folks already moving on this track to urge the alliance as a as an institution to go back inside its own planning processes and start to generate a more output focused um, way of measuring what uh, allies are doing. Now, if you're a country like Germany. Um, some people listening might say, well, you're just paying off the Germans. Well, the reality is if you're a country like Germany, actually you're having a lot of trouble on the capability output side. So it, it doesn't get anybody – well, it doesn't get the Germans off the hook. Um, but it does shift the conversation, I think, to where it needs to be, which is first a subsidiary of the broader political military conversation about the value of NATO, which I think is very much an enduring value. And it gets it focused in the right areas in terms of who's investing what. It's not about what you put in. It's what we're getting out in terms of military capability that should really matter to the alliance. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, this is uh, the 2%. This is a corner I think uh, successive American administrations have painted themselves into. We kept sort of narrowing, dumbing this thing down to this this 2% figure. It's a fetish. And now we we have an American president that's not using this to help NATO get stronger and better. It's it's a battering ram to actually harm the organization. So we're, we've got to get ourselves out of this place uh, and think about it much more widely. But again, <laughs> Europe has a problem. It has so uh, hollowed out its defense capabilities, and, and Germany is a perfect example, doesn't have operational submarines and, and aircraft, uh, and, and successive uh, budgets have just hollowed them out. And now they have a, they have a triple effect. They've got Russia as a, as a security threat. They have um, uh, border issues and, and intelligence needs and collective needs for instability in the South. They do need to increase their defense spending. And the problem is now we've gotten into a, such a place where uh, how President Trump has put these issues, it's making it harder for leaders who know they have to do this to do the right thing because now they're encountering a whole big swing of anti-Americanism that the only reason that, that Germany is doing this is because President Trump said that and now that's not right. So we're, we're, we're again, it's, it's the self-harm issue, but we have to keep Europe firmly focused that they must do this. There's no getting around it, but they're not doing it for us. They have to do it for themselves. Well, let me remind everyone, you're listening to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk, and we're talking about NATO with Kathleen Hicks and Heather Connolly. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Smart Women. I'm at Beverly Kirk. Follow Kath at 
Kath, K-A-T-H underscore Hicks, H-I-C-K-S. And you can follow Heather's program at CSIS Europe. Heather, you still don't tweet individually, do you? I embrace my Luddite perspective. <laughs> do, you, do you tweet into your pillow at night in anger? <laughs> no, I'm becoming like anti-Twitter. I am going to oh, communicate normally. That's what I'm going to do. But do follow at CSIS Twitter yes, because please. Heather and her program <laughs> do a lot of great work. And Kath has a phenomenal following on Twitter, and you should be one of them as well. I want to shift gears a bit and talk about a specific NATO member, Turkey. The Trump administration is uh, placing sanctions on Turkey's justice and interior ministers because of the jailing of an American pastor, Andrew Brunson, who was arrested back in 2016. Turkey says he has ties to uh, the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, and the Golanist movement that Turkey blames for the failed coup attempt. Uh, He, of course, denies all these charges. So, Question for you guys, how unprecedented is it that one NATO member would enact sanctions against another NATO member? Uh, it's not going to it doesn't bring me any comfort to say, but we have been here before. We were there in 1974 when Turkey invaded the island of Cyprus and we did sanction them. So, we have been in this place before. Um this um where we are in the US Turkish relationship did not just happen with uh, Father Brunson, um Pastor Brunson. Uh, it has been a rolling cumulative effect uh, for the last several years, and certainly since the uh, coup attempt in July of 2016, which is where, it's, in some ways, uh, Pastor Brunson got caught up uh, in the post-coup aftermath, things have really, really deteriorated. But this was on a, a, a downward trend for, for quite some time. So the sanctions are the fact that we have um, sanctioned the interior uh, and the justice minister is important, but I think this is just the beginning uh, because the Turkish government uh, is in the process of purchasing S-400 missile uh, defense system, a Russian system, Mm -hmm. of which would also fall uh, as an impact of uh, previous sanctions that the U.S. has put on Russia, Iran, North Korea, the Katsa legislation. Um, We are at loggerheads with Turkey on Iran and uh, Turkish violations of Iranian sanctions before the snapback is going to happen. This is under the uh, previous sanctions regime where the Turkish Hulk Bank was probably the largest uh, offender of U.S. sanctions uh, in our history. Um, And we have challenges with Turkey and Syria, and we disagree with Turkey. Um, They see the Syrian um, Kurdish um, political unit uh, and militia, the YPD and the YPG, as uh, the same as PKK and terrorists. And the U.S. is working with the YPG uh, to fight Daesh in Syria. So we disagree on Syria. We disagree a bit on Iraq, on Iran. And Turkey is moving closer to Russia, both for the military and the economic trade relations, as well as in Syria. So this has just been a a bilateral relationship that has been in deep trouble. And now we're at a point where we're in dire straits. We're now just harming each other because we can't move ourselves out of this place. And I fear it's only going to get worse in the near term. And we have, by we, I mean the U.S., has more than 1,000 military personnel and aircraft stationed in Turkey. Other NATO members have military personnel in Turkey. So Turkey said it's going to retaliate against the sanctions. What could this lead to? I mean, 
could you could you envision Turkey shutting down? I believe it's Incirlik Air Base, or telling the U.S. to, you know, you have to leave. Yeah, I I very much hope that that's. I don't I don't want to say I can't envision anything at this point in international affairs, um, but I would hope retaliation would come in the in kind, if you will, in in an economic uh, realm, much as the sanctions are an economic target. Um, that said, just stepping way back strategically, uh, having Turkey out of NATO is a terrible idea. I don't believe geography is destiny, but if we just start at geography, uh, we need Turkey. Um, we need Turkey to be um, part of the project of the West um, in terms of uh, Europe, whole and free. I think Turkey is incredibly important. There were, as Heather, I think, very well delineated, incredible challenges. And they didn't start with the U.S. administration, um, and they didn't start with this um, particular uh, pastor. Um, and they're not going to be solved easily. But um, it's a it's a war. It's we got to go through, not a, around, under, over. We got to go through in this relationship. Um, and and again, on the geography piece, you, you have um, Turkish control over important waterways. You have the link to the Middle East, and then, as Heather started to point out, you have the link, the potential for if you were to eject. Um, even emotionally, if you will, significantly eject uh, Turkey from the Western project, let alone from from um, a belief that it's valued in NATO, um, there is a very willing recipient over in Russia that would welcome Turkey with open arms. So it's really interesting, the history. So when President Truman was creating the Truman Doctrine, which was the Soviet containment doctrine, it really began in Turkey and Greece uh, because they were falling under great sway of under communism. So that was really the first place we needed to stop that. That's the geostrategic part of it and the Marshall Plan. And we uh, inviting Greece and Turkey into NATO was part of that anchoring. And we the anchor has been just being pulled. Uh, President Erdogan has a very different vision for Turkey than any other Turkish leader that it's the U.S. has dealt with. It, it, there's no. In fact, it is the anti-Ataturk. It is a neo-Ottoman perspective where uh, Turkey it has greater uh, vision of its of its influence from the Western Balkans and Southern Europe to uh, to the Middle East, um, and it in, and it's it's changing its democratic uh, positioning and institutions, and uh, that was all accelerated by the the coup in July of 2016. So as President Erdogan says, this is a new Turkey. Uh, that we are dealing with. We've just not used new tools and new policies to deal with this new Turkey. We're on old policies, but dealing with a very new country. Again, uh, NATO has its land component in Turkey in Izmir, the Incirlik. Uh, but Incirlik was temporarily closed mm -hmm. during the, yes. the during July the 2016 the coup. coup. And that yes. was a real wake-up call. And very senior Turkish officials publicly, repeatedly for a long time, said the U.S. was involved in this coup, that, that Incirlik could have been uh, part of it. I mean, the anti-Americanism that is coming from very senior Turkish leaders, and this is before we entered into the, the current uh, issues with uh, Pastor Brunson, unbelievable stuff. So even if the government would be you know, quick to swing and change approach, you have created a population that's now getting fed 24-7 
with the, the Americans are the problem here. Uh, you also have to keep in mind Turkish uh, Turkey's economic situation is getting more and more dire by the day. The lira just dropped horribly over the sanctions uh, announcement. So Turkey is a is a fragile economic uh, perspective. It is in a geostrategic storm right now from Syria, Iraq, the pressure from Russia, the, the migration challenge. It's still host to over three million refugees, and you have a, a vision of a Turkey that can not be established in, in a modern context, but the leader is going to try. So this is an incredibly complex uh, challenge. It affects the Turkish Straits, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Black Sea. This is NATO's southern flank, and Turkey plays an important role in it, but it can also be a destabilizing role on the border. So could not be more important. I wish we had better answers, though, and we just, we just don't right now. Well, as we wrap up here, is there anything positive that we can think of to say about about NATO, the future of the alliance, and the situation within the alliance? Is there anything uh, that that is reason for hoping that this will all be resolved in a way that all of the parties can, if not save face, just not be embarrassed? So I'm, I'll start just by echoing really what Heather said at the beginning, which is that I find hope in the fact that we are now at a point where we ha- you can see very clearly the um, force of um, belief in the alliance that's coming from different quarters throughout the alliance. And obviously in each country, in each context domestically, they have their own challenges and not everyone in that domestic context believes in NATO as a as as a goal. But there's I, I have been very heartened by the degree to which we have um, seen across the alliance a strong rebuttal to the argument that it doesn't have strategic value. And um, the EU working with, for instance, uh, the Japanese and others on trade, you know, that's about free markets. You know, we may not be at the table. We, the U.S., may not always be at the table. But as Heather said, they're at least setting a table that we would be very, you know, a U.S., a liberal democracy U.S. would be very comfortable coming to. And so they are taking the lead in some cases. Cases in ways that are really beneficial. So there is a ton of reasons to be optimistic. You just you have to look for that optimism. So for the last two years, Kath and I have done more research discussion about NATO, and that is because the president has profoundly challenged what that is, and we have to we have to provide the facts, the reasons. So, you know what we're talking about it. The Senate has now reconstituted the Senate NATO Observer Group, which ended, um, gosh, back in 2007, I believe. It, it was designed for NATO enlargement to get uh, the Senate to ratify amended NATO treaties as we brought in new members. That's been reconstituted, a bipartisan. Ten senators, uh, five Republicans, five Democrats, that needs to, again, we need to reawaken ourselves. If you just would take out the drama and the theatrics and all the cameras and press conferences at the NATO summit, that was a really strong declaration. We've now, NATO has stood up two new commands to deal with Russian submarine threats in the Atlantic, which is directly impacts U.S. national security. We have a logistics command that's going to help rapidly deploy NATO forces moving west to east if there is a crisis on the east. You have substantial increases in defense spending, uh, which we, we should say that, you know, keep going. You're in the right direction. Keep going. There is a lot of good things. Rapid mobilization. 
mobilization, the four, the 430s, which is in 30 days to move 30 vessels, 30 air squadrons, and 30 battalions very rapidly. That's, that's what NATO is about. So that's good. That's good. We just, I think, have to get back to the basics of why these alliances matter, and it better be powerfully important to my 19-year-old about why NATO is important. And that, that's work on us. That's not work on our European allies. we we got to do that at home. All right. Well, Heather, you get the last word. Thank you both, Kath and Heather, for joining us for what has been an absolutely phenomenal conversation. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Remember to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Beverly Kirk. We're at Smart Women. Kath is at Kath underscore Hicks. And Heather's program is at CSIS Europe. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.